Okay, all right. If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we are going to open up with a reading from the Scripture. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and I'm reading from the ESV, but uh, feel free to follow along in whichever translation you have. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? And the debater of, the, of this age. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. Our opening prayer this morning is taken from the writings of Origen of Alexandria. And just a little note, you will hear in this prayer the language of, uh, of merit, and uh, deserving to obtain grace. Understand that for Origen, um, the only way that we can deserve anything from God is because God has made us deserving. It is God first working graciously in our lives. Um, and so uh, with that context in mind, if you will bow with me as we, as we pray this afternoon. Lord God, let us keep your scriptures in mind and meditate on them day and night, persevering in prayer, always on the watch. We beg you, Lord, to give us real knowledge of what we read and to show us not only how to understand it, but how to put it into practice so that we may deserve to obtain spiritual grace enlightened by the law of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Lord whose power and glory will endure throughout all ages. Amen. Well, just after the beginning of the 3rd century, around the year 202, the Roman emperor Septimus Severus stirred up a persecution against the church. And we'll talk more next time about Roman persecution. But understand that uh, though... Christianity was an illegal religion, and the church constantly lived under the threat of persecution. The government actively seeking out and punishing Christians was more or less a, a local affair. Uh, 
yet there were sporadic instances when the emperor stepped in and got his own hands dirty. Well, Severus was such an emperor. And one of the victims of this persecution was a man from the Egyptian city of Alexandria named Leonidas. Now, we know very little about Leonidas. He was well off financially, probably earning a living as a private tutor. We know that he loved his family very much. He had seven boys. Can you imagine? Seven boys. And he personally oversaw their education. Uh, For a wealthy family, this would be something that would be left usually to a household slave. Um, But Leonidas himself personally oversaw their education. Uh, A typical Roman education would be in Greek liberal studies, in literature and rhetoric. But the bedrock for this family's education was the Bible. Leonidas was adamant that the usual curriculum be set aside until a thorough study in the scriptures had been completed every day. We're talking about extensive Bible readings and scripture memories. Bible drills, but on steroids. It's, uh, Eusebius tells us that in the middle of the night, Leonidas would tiptoe into his son's bedroom And he would stoop down and he would kiss their chest. Eusebius says, as if the divine spirit were enshrined within it, considering himself blessed in his excellent offspring. Loved his family very much. When Leonidas was taken prisoner, his oldest son, Origen, not yet 17 years old, was determined to go with him. And he would have, if it wasn't for his mother. Thank God for mothers. Happy Mother's Day. She was determined that she would not lose both her husband and her son in the same day. But try as hard as she might, no amount of tears could dissuade the zealous origin. But this mother knew her son. And she knew that Origen would rather die a martyr's death than be seen naked. And so she hid all of his clothes. And Origen... Though inflamed with a martyr's zeal, he cannot get dressed, so he won't leave the house. Eventually, the martyr's fever leaves Origen. He's spared. But he writes a letter to his father in prison, encouraging him to remain firm in the faith even until death. And by God's grace, Leonidas seals his testimony with his blood. His son, Origen, would go on to become the most influential theologian in church history since the Apostle Paul, only to be surpassed centuries later, at least in the West, by Augustine. For some scholars, Origen represents the flowering of Antonician Christianity, the best that the era has to offer. 
For some, they're convinced that church history would have gone a lot more smoothly if his mother had just let him go. This morning, we want to consider the life and influence of origin of Alexandria. But before we do so, let me quickly uh, explain why I believe uh, in this brief overview in this time period of church history that such a detailed study is warranted. You'll remember that uh, in this survey, uh, really a supplement of what Pastor Kyle has already laid the foundation for us, Uh, two years before, Uh, what we're doing is we're looking at those major influences that shaped early church history, the Jewish religion, Greek culture, and Roman government. Last month, we considered the Jewish religion and the struggles that the church went through in order to define itself in light of this religious background. Well, this month, we want to turn our attention to the influence of Greek culture. Remember that Greek culture permeated the Mediterranean world thanks in large part to the conquest of Alexander the Great back in the 4th century B.C. He saw it as his personal mission to Hellenize or Greekify his empire. And so centuries later when the apostles and their associates sat down to write about the life and teachings of Christ... They did so using the Greek language. And this Greek language carried with it Greek ideas. So the question to be considered is, how much of this Greek culture influences the church's theology? Is it appropriate to couch the message of the gospel in terms uh, of Greek philosophy? Well, on this question, the early church was divided. Tertullian, an early church apologist who we've already encountered, was staunchly opposed to any such philosophizing. He famously wrote, and I have the quote for you in, uh, in the outline, he said this, What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Our instruction comes from the porch of Solomon, who had himself taught that the Lord should be sought in simplicity of heart. Away with all attempts to produce a modeled Christianity of Stoic, Platonic, and dialectical composition. We want no curious disputation after possessing Christ Jesus, no inquisition after enjoying the gospel. With our faith, we we desire no further belief. For this is our outstanding faith, that there is nothing which which we ought to believe besides. Well, others, like Clement of Alexandria, who lived a century before Origen, he saw things differently. For him, philosophy was the product of divine providence. Philosophy was to the Greeks what the law was to the Jews, a tutor given by God to lead them to Christ. Clement didn't shy away from couching his theology in terms of Greek philosophy, seeing it as a tool 
given by God by which we can come to understand his revelation in the scriptures better and more intimately. These struggles with Greek culture are exemplified in the life and teachings of Origen. And so anyways, that's my excuse for turning our attention this afternoon to Origen of Alexandria. Well, first off, let's sketch out Origen's life. Origen was born, of course, in the city of Alexandria around the year 185. He was raised in a Christian home. And after his father was martyred around the year 202-203, all his father's property was confiscated by the government, leaving the family absolutely destitute. The responsibility for providing for the family, his mother and six little brothers, fell on the young Origen. And this he did by working as a private tutor. And he was so successful in this endeavor that he caught the attention of Demetrius, the local bishop of Alexandria, who invited Origen to become the head of the catechetical school in Alexandria. Now, Origen would be responsible for training new converts, not only in the fundamentals of the faith, but also in the rudiments of Greek education. The school of Alexandria was uh, one of the most prestigious in the ancient world. Think like an ancient Harvard or uh, an ancient Yale. It respected even by pagans. So Origen won for himself quite the reputation, uh, not only for his academic accomplishments, but also for his boldness in ministering to those who were sentenced to death for their faith. Now, the Romans hated Christians. And more than that, they hated those who converted from pagan, paganism to Christianity, making Origen's students uh, uh, prime suspects for their hatred. Eusebius writes, Origen was with them not only in prison or in court, right up to the final sentence, but even when they were being led away to their death, he courageously approached them and kissed them boldly. Often a surrounding heathen mob came close to stoning him, but for the divine right hand arranging his extraordinary escape. Origen also gained the reputation as a rigorist, He came to the conviction that studying Greek literature was useless. So he sold all his books and spent most of his free time studying the scriptures. He would limit his sleep so that he could have more time in the word. When he did sleep, it was always on a hard floor, never on a comfy bed. He would fast often. And he owned no more than a couple changes of clothes, preferring to go barefoot throughout the streets. Eusebius again says, By enduring cold, nakedness, and extreme poverty, he astonished his concerned followers who begged him to share their possessions. Well, it was while he was still a young man that he carried his asceticism to a radical 
extreme. Um, as a tutor, he had the responsibility of teaching classes of both boys and girls, and he was worried uh, about the charges that might be brought uh, uh, by his opponents, by the opponents of, a Christ, of Christ, how they might assail him for having to uh, enter into these rooms of, of mixed uh, uh, sexes. And after all, doesn't the Lord teach us that for the sake of the kingdom, some make themselves eunuchs? No, so Origen did. Yes, he castrated himself. Now, we're going to talk in a minute about how Origen is most known for his allegorizing of the scripture. I have to say that that is a very bold point to all of a sudden start taking the scripture super literally. Uh, I mean, when I read that passage, I think, yeah, allegory, that sounds good to me. Um, but or, uh, Eusebius, Eusebius adds uh, this interesting historical note. Uh, he says that he tried to carry it out, uh, trying to do so unnoticed by his students. Uh, but however much he wished it, he could not possibly hide such a deed. Now, I don't know what that means. But I can imagine that he shows up to class one day and all of a sudden his voice gets really high. Maybe he's walking around a little funny. I don't know. But uh, later in life, Origen would admit uh, that he was acting rashly and would eventually, uh, it would eventually embroil him in some controversy later on in his life. But at the time, it did nothing but add to his reputation uh, as a devout follower of Christ. He earned for himself the nickname Adamantius, meaning man of steel. Around the year 215, Origen uh, would have been in his 30s, a violent disturbance in Alexandria forced him to flee, and he ended up staying for uh, a time in Palestine, settling in Caesarea. Uh, he continued teaching, giving public lectures wherever he went, and was invited to fill the pulpit at a few churches, something, uh, a privilege that was denied him at Alexandria. You couldn't preach in Alexandria unless you were ordained um, and Bishop Demetrius would not ordain uh, Origen for whatever reason. Eventually, Origen would be recalled to Alexandria and resume his duties there, but Origen continued to travel widely to Rome, to Arabia, often at the invitation of local bishops uh, to teach or to refute heretics in public debates. It was while traveling again through Caesarea that the bishops decided to ordain him as a presbyter. And this was in the year 231, so Origen would have been about 45 years old. Now this caused a great deal of controversy. When his bishop Demetrius heard of it, uh, he raised a fuss. Who was the bishop of Caesarea to ordain a member of the church of Alexandria? And... Uh, Demetrius called into question 
uh, whether or not Origen was qualified to be a bishop. Uh, After all, the law tells us that a person cannot be a priest if he has crushed testicles and Origen, well, you know the story. Um, And so he argued that Origen wasn't qualified to be a bishop in the church. Um, Origen had friends far and wide that came to his defense. And though Demetrius died the following year in uh, 232, the damage was done. Origen ended up relocating uh, permanently to Palestine, establishing a school there, living out the rest of his life. One of his students, Theodore, describes what it was like sitting under Origen's teaching in Caesarea. Uh, He writes this. It was like a spark falling in our deepest soul, setting it on fire, making it burst into flame within us. It was, at at the same time, a love for the Holy Word, the most beautiful object of all that, by its ineffable beauty attracts all things to itself with irresistible force. And it was also love for this man, the friend and advocate of the Holy Word. I was thus persuaded to give up all other goals. I had only one remaining object that I valued and longed for, philosophy, and that divine man who was my master of philosophy. Origen was held in very high esteem by his students. Origen was a prolific writer, both in Alexandria and in Caesarea. In fact, after he converted a wealthy Gnostic named Ambrose, convincing him of his serious error, Ambrose became something of a patron for Origen and supplied him with a house, a secretary, seven stenographers, a crew of copyists and calligraphers, and paid for all of his writings to be published. So if anyone thinks that my ideas are particularly brilliant, um, I, could, I could use a patron myself, but uh, high hopes, I guess. He would dictate multiple books at a time. I don't know how you do that, but he did. Uh, one early church writer says that Origen was responsible for 8,000 books. Now, that's probably exaggerated. Uh, Jerome says that Eusebius cataloged 2,000 writings that belonged to Origen. Uh, Jerome himself mentions 800. Well, besides biblical commentaries and collections of sermons, he wrote on doctrinal and practical matters, along with apologetic works defending the faith. One of his most famous writings was a book called Against Celsus. Celsus was one of the leading pagan critics of Christianity who lived in the second century, so a a century before Origen. Well, Origen turned his attention to answer his objection point by point. He also wrote his book First Principles, which was the first attempt at a systematic theology in church history. Most of Origen's writings have been lost to history uh, for a reason that we'll explain um, in a little bit. Well, let's conclude Origen's life. 
His reputation finally caught up with him when the emperor Decius, in the year 250, called for one of the most violent persecutions against the church. Origen was a prime target. Orders were given that Origen was not to be killed, but instead he was to be captured and made an example, forced to recant his faith. And so for two years, he was imprisoned and endured daily torture. Eusebius gives us the grisly details. In this persecution, the evil demon, talking about Decius, attacked Origen in particular with all the weapons in his arsenal, making him endure chains and torture for the word of Christ as he lay in irons in the depths of his dungeon. Day after day, his legs were stretched apart four paces in the stocks. But he courageously endured threats of fire and every other torment devised by his enemies. Origen remained true to the faith. He did not recant. And after Decius was killed in battle, the persecution ceased, and Origen was released. But he would never fully recover. And so he died from his wounds nearly a year later at the age of 69. Well, that's Origen's life. Let's now turn to his teachings. And we begin where Origen himself began, the Holy Scriptures. Origen was nothing if not a student of the Word of God. Origen is often falsely described as a philosopher who just added a little bit of Bible into his philosophy to pass as Christian. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Of his major works were commentaries, whole books of the Bible. He wrote 13 books commenting on Genesis, 36 books on Isaiah, 25 on Ezekiel, Uh, 25 on the Minor Prophets, 35 on the Psalms, 3 on Proverbs, 10 on the Song of Solomon, and 5 on Lamentations. And that's just the Old Testament. He also wrote books of commentaries on Matthew, John, and Paul's epistles. One of his greatest accomplishments was his Hexapla. Origen was uh, one of two church fathers who was fluent in Hebrew. Does anyone know who the other one was? Nope, not Augustine. What was that? Uh, Josephus was a Jew. Starts with a J, though. No, no, no. John Calvin was Reformation. Jerome. Yes. Uh... Origen and Jerome, the only two who, who knew Hebrew. And uh, the early church probably would have benefited greatly uh, if they had studied more uh, the original Hebrew. Well, he wrote his Hexapla. It was an Old Testament laid out in six parallel columns. In one column was the Hebrew text. In another co- uh, column was a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew text so that um, uh, uh, 
preachers or teachers who knew Greek could uh, pronounce the Hebrew more effectively, uh, followed by three para- uh, columns of three different translations of the, of the Greek text. And then, of course, the fourth column was the King James. That's, that's, that's a joke for my King James only friends. Uh, no, there were four different Greek translations. Um, you can imagine the countless number of hours it must have taken to painstakingly copy column by column these six different versions of the Old Testament, uh, making textual notes as he went along. It took him 28 years to complete. But for Origen, it was a labor of love. It was crucial for him because he believed that not only was the Scripture the product of the Holy Spirit, generally speaking, but that every jot, every tittle, every word was breathed out by God. And so it was important to know as much as humanly possible which words the Holy Spirit had inspired. Origen says, the wisdom of God has penetrated to all the scriptures inspired by God, even down to the smallest letter. Well, Origen is best known for his allegorical interpretation of the scriptures, except for that, you know, that one time. Um, He was by no means the first to use this method of exegesis. Uh, For centuries, the Greeks had been reading their sacred myths uh, in an allegorical way to try and harmonize them with Greek philosophy. And there was already in the city of Alexandria uh, a robust tradition of this allegorizing method uh, devised by the Jewish theologian Philo of Alexandria who lived a generation before Jesus. Philo is one of the few people that Origen would name as a major influence of his thought. Other Christians before Origen had read the scriptures in an allegorical sense, but Origen certainly perfected it. Now, if you're not familiar with an allegory, uh, it is a method of interpretation whereby biblical persons and incidents become representative of abstract virtues or doctrines or incidents in the life of the soul. One of the most famous allegories that all of us are probably familiar with would be uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan's protagonist, you remember, is named Christian. And no doubt, uh, he is a representative of the typical Christian life. Uh, He begins his life, right, in the city of destruction, and he's headed for the celestial city. Um, He follows the advice of evangelist. Uh, um, He foolishly becomes prey to the counsel of worldly wise man. Uh, He ends up in Doubting Castle. He's tormented by giant despair. Bunyan's allegory is usually right on the nose, Um, It doesn't take a whole lot of digging to figure out what he's talking about. Uh, The Holy Spirit, Origen argued, was a lot more clever. You had to really mine the scriptures in order to, uh, uh, to get from it all of the treasure that it contains. 
Well, it's important to note that in appealing to allegory, Origen rarely discredits the literal historical meaning of a text. Uh, Dr. Haken, uh, church, uh, church history professor at Southern Seminary, uh, he says that Origen never uses allegory to the exclusion of other methods. Whereas other allegorists uh, wrote off the literal meaning of the text as useless, Origen uh, explicitly condemned those who dispensed entirely with the historical element of the scripture. Origen identified three values in the literal text. First, the Bible does contain true and important history. Uh, Second, the literal meaning could be edifying to those simple believers who filled the church pews, uh, those of us not gifted with great spiritual insight and intellect. The literal meaning could be very helpful for most people. And third, the literal meaning had tremendous apologetic value. It's interesting to note that very seldom does Origen make use of allegory in his against Celsus. Uh, He mainly sticks with the literal reading of the text. Nonetheless, Origen doesn't place a whole lot of value in the historical meaning of a text. Uh, History for Origen is important primarily as, uh, one scholar put it, an acted parable, a charade for showing forth eternal truths about God. So the chief value of a miracle recorded in the Bible isn't so much that the miracle actually happened. The value, rather, is in the spiritual truth that that miracle is pointing us to. Um, Thus, uh, a heart truly on fire for the truths of God's word will not be satisfied with just a surface reading of the text. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life, Origen would say. Therefore, we need to aim for the deeper spiritual truths that lie hidden by the Spirit underneath the literal reading of the text. Origen was aware of the dangers uh, and that this allegorizing method could be abused. Um, After all, the Gnostics and the heretics universally appealed to an allegorical reading of the Bible in order to peddle their false doctrine. So what's to prevent an allegorist from treating the scripture as a wax nose, as it were? What's to stop someone from interpreting the Bible to to say whatever they want it to say? Well, Origen had three rules in place for safeguarding against fanciful interpretation. First, the scriptures must have a present meaning and application. If you're reading something in the Bible, it must mean something for you in your current circumstance. So, for instance, we're all probably familiar with Genesis chapter 18. That's the the chapter where Abraham is visited by the three visitors, Uh, just before uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You're all familiar with that text. Well, Genesis 18, verse 8, 
tells us Abraham stood by them, uh, the three visitors. Uh, wait, hold on a second. Let me, let me back up a second. And Abraham stood by them, talking about the three visitors, under the tree while they ate. That's Genesis 18, verse 8. Well, if, as the Apostle Paul says, that all Scripture is written for our instruction, if this is God's uh, breathed-out word, if it is profitable for us, Origen says, what does it help me who have come to hear what the Holy Spirit teaches the human race if I hear that Abraham was standing under a tree. There must be a deeper spiritual meaning that the Holy Spirit intends to communicate to me through that text. That was his first rule. Second, the scriptures must be interpreted in light of the rule of faith, what we basically call the Apostles' Creed. No interpretation of scripture can go contrary to what the church has always believed since apostolic times. Haken says this, Origen was conscious that he had to always check his exegesis against that of other exegetes, with the ultimate source of authority being Scripture itself. Finally, uh, the third rule, the exegete must be a person of the Spirit. You cannot understand the scriptures unless you come to them with a commitment to obey them. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and an evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The exegete must be a good person, a person of the Spirit walking in accordance with the Spirit, then the Spirit will reveal to him these hidden truths contained beneath the literal word. Well, despite these safeguards, it is true that Origen often let his imagination get the best of him, reading things into the Scripture that the author nor the Holy Spirit ever intended for anyone to find in them. Um, I might just be a simple person, but sometimes when the Holy Spirit says to you that Abraham was standing underneath a tree, the Holy Spirit is trying to tell you that Abraham was standing underneath a tree. Uh, <laughs> nonetheless, the zeal with which Origen read his Bible, mining its depths to see Christ in every passage, is something to be commended. How often have you been reading your Bibles? You know, you start your uh, through the Bible in a year program. You get through Genesis just fine. It's a really long book, but you get through it just fine. Exodus has some bumpy parts, but you get through it. And then Leviticus, right? Leviticus is where many Bible reading plans go to die. You read about different kinds of sacrifices. 
You get to the holiness code. You read about sores and scabs and funny-looking hairs. And you cry out in desperation, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Well, Origen didn't have that problem. He preached line by line through the book of Leviticus, and he found Christ, the church, and the eschaton on every page. And honestly, as one Bible teacher put it, I'd rather run the risk of making the error of seeing Jesus somewhere in the, in the scriptures where he is not, than totally missing him where he actually is. We'll have more to say about that in our conclusion, but we move on. The fruit of Origen's exegesis is his theology. And so we want to consider some of Origen's theological beliefs. And in this regard, uh, Origen might rightly be regarded as a Christian Platonist. A disciple of the Greek philosopher Plato understood in the light of the perfect, truer teachings of Christ. Plato, most of you probably know, was a Greek philosopher who lived in the 4th century B.C., was one of the most influential thinkers who has ever existed. Many of the church fathers greatly admired Plato. In fact, I think I put in your outline a quote from Augustine um, showing that general regard for Plato. They believed that he, out of all of the philosophers, came the closest to a true biblical worldview. In fact, he gets so close that many are convinced that Plato, I mean many of the church fathers, were convinced that Plato had come in contact with the Hebrew Scriptures and had incorporated some of its ideas into his own philosophy. At the very least, it was understood that Plato, using his God-given reason, carefully interpreted God's general revelation. And though not perfectly, he had arrived at certain theological truths and that therefore there was much to be learned from this ancient sage. Origen's book called First Principles is a representation of Christian Platonic thought. This was the first attempt in history of something like a systematic theology. And Origen is open about his starting point. First, he establishes the rule of faith, like we've already discussed. He says, The teaching of the church, handed down in unbroken succession from the apostles, is still preserved and continues to exist in the churches up to the present day. And we maintain that that only is to be believed as the truth which in no way conflicts with the tradition of the church and the apostles. So he establishes the rule of faith. Then he says this, and I put this quote in your outline because I want you to see uh, where Origen goes off. He says this, but the following fact should be understood. 
The holy apostles, when preaching the faith of Christ, took certain doctrines, those namely which they believed to be necessary ones, and delivered them in the plainest terms to all believers, even to such as appeared to be somewhat dull in the investigation of divine knowledge. The grounds of their statements they left to be investigated by such as should merit the higher gifts of the Spirit, and in particular, by such as should afterwards receive, through the Holy Spirit himself, the graces of language, wisdom, and knowledge. There were other doctrines, however, about which the apostles simply said that things were so, keeping silence as to how or why their intention undoubtedly being to supply the more diligent of those who came after them, such as should prove to be lovers of wisdom, with an exercise on which to display the fruit of their ability. The men I refer to are those who train themselves to become worthy and capable of receiving wisdom. In other words, there are plain truths that are necessary for everyone to believe, And the apostles laid them down in clear, plain terms. But there are other doctrines that the wise are to tease out of the writings of the apostles. Origen saw in this foundational point an excuse for giving full vent to his curiosity and speculation. And as we will see, Origen's imagination runs wild. But, to be charitable, let's begin with Origen's most lasting and significant contribution to Christian theology. Origen is the first theologian to articulate that doctrine we call the eternal generation of the Son. Now, Pastor Kyle has done a great job opening up that doctrine as we uh, survey the 1689 Confession, Um, drawing from Scripture that Christ is uh, the wisdom of God. Origen writes, And can anyone who has learned to regard God with feelings of reverence suppose or believe that God the Father ever existed, even for a single moment, without begetting this wisdom? When was God ever without his wisdom? When was God a fool and then created wisdom and became wise? But that doesn't make any sense. This, for Origen, was gross impiety. So Origen concludes, God was always the father of his only begotten son, who was born indeed of him and draws his being from him, but is yet without any beginning. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Therefore, while we can speak in a sense of Christ having his origin in God the Father, he is begotten of the Father. This begetting is from eternity. There never was when the Son was not. The seeds that would germinate into Trinitarian orthodoxy were present in the writings of Origen. At the same time, there are hints in Origen's writings of a subordination 
amongst the persons of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit submitting to the Father and the Son. The Son submitting to the Father. Um, And though the Son and the Spirit are clearly divine, clearly not in the category of creation or creature, but Origen's confusion regarding the relationship between the persons made way for the Arian controversy that would later develop. Both Athanasius and Arius, if you're not familiar with those names, you will be soon. (laughs) Uh, They could both equally claim to be disciples of Origen. Another doctrine that Origen taught was the pre-existence of human souls. Following Plato... Origen believed that all souls were created before the creation of this physical world and had an existence in heaven. He's helped in this, by the way, by an allegorical reading of Genesis 1 through 3. Um, Those events that we read in Genesis 1 through 3 actually happen before the creation of this physical world in heaven. Um, Those souls are endowed with free will given the ability to choose either to obey God or to rebel against him. And based on their level of obedience, certain souls, those who were most obedient, were allowed to become angels. Those who were most rebellious became demons. And humans are somewhere in the middle. Uh, This status, angel, human, demon, was not fixed. Souls could move up or down on this chain of being. Um, If they cooperate with divine grace, using their free will, they could ascend to the realm of the angels. This radical commitment to free will led to Origen theorizing that one day all souls will be redeemed, a hypothetical universalism. Eventually everyone's going to be saved. Hell, for origin, was not punitive. It was not a place where God um, executes his just vengeance um, and punishment on the wicked. Rather, hell was understood as restorative. Now, some critics charged origin with teaching that even the devil will one day be Redeemed. Origen himself said that the idea was absurd, uh, so it's probably a mischaracterization, but um, that, that was his radical view of human freedom and universalism. Origen had other problems. An adoptionist Christology, a denial of the physical resurrection. After all, the resurrection was, for the Greeks, a stumbling block. And we don't have time to go into these other areas. So let's conclude by considering Origen's legacy. As a teacher and writer, Origen greatly influenced the future, uh, future generations, especially in the East. The great Cappadocian fathers, Basil the Great and Gregory Nazianzen, compiled Origen's most helpful works in what they called the Philippines, Philokalia. And this, in spite of Origen's obvious 
Trinitarian errors. We'll learn more about the Cappadocian fathers um, in the months to come, but uh, these men were committed to Trinitarian orthodoxy, and it's uh, thanks to their labors that Arianism was almost entirely snuffed out. So these were not men who were willing to compromise on the truths of the Trinity. Nonetheless, they felt that Origen had said some things that were really helpful. And so they compiled some of his most helpful, um, some of his most helpful writings. But Origen was not without his critics. We can attest to this by the number of works that were written in the 4th century in defense of Origen. Obviously, there, he needed defending against something. He was particularly influential among the desert fathers and their monastic uh, followers. It was because of this influence that when the church gathered for a council at Constantinople in the year 553, Origen was condemned as a heretic. Yes, Origen was canceled. And as a consequence, all of his writings were designated for destruction. And so only a handful of them remain today. Um, in fact, we have a whole bunch of Origen's writings that have not been translated into English because not many people think they're worth translating. <laughs> Where did Origen go wrong? What lessons can we learn from his mistakes? First, Origen was so committed to Greek philosophy that he allowed it to determine his theology. And what was intended originally to be a tool to help him better understand the scriptures eventually came to stand over the word of God, uh, uh, determining his interpretation. If we aren't careful... Our own philosophies, our own traditions can cause us to make the same mistakes. Whether it's critical race theory or our personal political philosophies, whether that's conservatism or libertarianism or what have you, even our own 1689 federalism. If we're not careful, we will mold the scriptures to fit those philosophies. And so we need to be on the guard against allowing any philosophy to, um, to uh, uh, control our understanding of the scriptures. May it never be said of us, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Second, Origen took the silence of the scripture as an invitation to speak into that silence and to speculate about things that the scripture doesn't mention. His imagination ran wild and it led him into serious theological error. Instead, we ought to follow the advice of Calvin, who said, whenever the Lord shuts his sacred mouth, we also desist from inquiry. The best rule of sobriety is not only in learning to follow wherever God leads, but also when he makes an end of teaching to cease also from wishing to be wise. Deuteronomy 29.29 29, 
The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So what should we think about origin? Saint or heretic? Now, Origen is the favorite early church writer to be quoted by modern-day heretics. I became aware of Origen first through reading Rob Bell's Love Wins. That's four hours of my life I'll never get back. (laughs) Uh, But he quotes Origen in his attempt to try and destroy the evangelical doctrine of hell. Um, So how how should we regard Origen? Well, I think the advice of Robert Godfrey is very helpful. Godfrey uh, taught a a lengthy series through church history um, on Ligonier. Um, Godfrey says that Origen is the most important theologian in the early church. And he was wrong about almost everything. Yet he holds Origen in high esteem as a pioneer in Christian theology. He was asking the right questions, even though he arrived at terrible answers. And following that pioneering analogy, as a pioneer goes out to explore new land, he often runs into dead ends, right? That comes with the territory of being a pioneer. The problem comes with those who come after the pioneer, after the highway's already been paved, and they choose to go the dead end anyways. That's where the problem is. What is vain curiosity in one generation can become damnable heresy in the next We need to be charitable and not judge someone in light of the result of future controversies. Origen was, at the core of his being, a philosopher, a lover of wisdom, if and only if we understand, as Origen did, that Christ is the wisdom of God. For this, Origen lived and died. How did Origen want to be remembered? He writes, But I hope to be a man of the church. I hope to be addressed not by the name of some arch-heretic, but by the name of Christ. I hope to have his name which is blessed upon the earth. I desire both in deed and thought, both to be and to be called a Christian. And to that I think we can all say, Amen. All right, well, do we have any questions about origin of Alexandria? Do we have the mic going around by somebody? I don't know. We had Tim here. If you say it, I'll repeat it. You know, that's a good question. So the question is, 
How did he interpret that passage in Genesis 18 about Abraham being under the tree? You know, I, so I got that from reading um, Michael Haken's book on, uh, uh, I think it's called Rediscovering the Early Church Fathers or Rereading the Early Church Fathers, something like that. And he mentions that, that quote from Origen. Unfortunately, he doesn't say what Origen, <laughs> how Origen interpreted that passage. So I, did, I, 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 if I could make a guess, I would say, I would say that as, as Origen is invited, is standing there under the tree, and he's eating with, with God. Well, he, he's not eating with God. He's watching God eat. Right. In the New Covenant, we come under the tree of Calvary. And God not only invites us to just watch him eat, but he invites us to the Lord's Supper to eat with him in the New Covenant. So I don't know. I don't know. So yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I wish I knew. I looked it up. I couldn't find it. But. Any other questions about origin? Things related to origin. You said you were going to have some questions. Sorry, <laughs> your sorry, your um, King James only joke didn't go over well. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Is this not on? What do I do? Hit it. Red. But now it's working. Um, this is kind of a comment, kind of a question, but just related to origin being accused, and it sounds like it's true to an extent of imposing non-biblical philosophies over the scriptures. And there's a lot of accusation of the same thing going on today regarding controversies uh, about the doctrine of God and things like that. And so it is important that we don't think that the Bible condemns all of what's called philosophy, right? Um, Because we believe not only what is explicitly stated in scripture, but we also believe in good and necessary inference, right? So there are many things that are not explicitly stated in Scripture, but we believe that the Scripture says them and teaches them because that's the way the Scriptures have to fit together, right? Now, I think in our day, if one guy takes that further than another guy is comfortable with, he immediately goes, you're, you're becoming a philosopher, right? And it's just kind of a, a poisoning the well sort of accusation of just because a guy sees more in the scriptures of like, no, I think this, there's a good and necessary reason to conclude this. If this guy's not willing to cross that bridge and go that far, it's like, oh, you're, you're a philosopher, you know, and you're, you're taking outside philosophy and just imposing it on the text and you're making the text say what you want it to say. Um, do you think, I mean, just from your study of origin and what he legitimately maybe was guilty of, you have any opinion on the difference between those two things of where, yes, we can identify this is an illegitimate bridge too far that you're now imposing outside philosophy on the Bible versus just perhaps someone who perhaps has thought deeper about how the Bible fits together. It's kind of an open-ended question, but any thoughts or correlations you thought about while studying this? Uh, I mean, yeah, so it's it's... One thing that I'm hoping that we, we get out of this is seeing that these controversies and these struggles that the fathers are dealing with isn't something that's foreign to us, right? It's something that we're still, to a degree, 
having to deal with? What is the relationship between philosophy and theology, and how do these things relate together? Um, but yeah, origin. I mean, obviously, origin. Origin is reading from Plato this idea of uh, the pre-existence of human souls, and he's reading that into his his understanding of the Bible. Like that, that's that's where he gets it from. It's not from the Bible. It's from Plato. Um, and yeah, so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you want to? I was thinking of you when I asked the question. It's, so it's a little, I'm just trying to come up with the right question rather than it being kind of vague. For the live stream. Whatever, however that goes. Um. To go along with that a little bit, all right, so could you say that, uh, like, allegory and literal is like a spectrum, right? Um, you know, because uh, as, as those in the Reformed Church, we would believe in a, in a typology, right? right? And even within Plato, he uses things like shadow of something, right? And then the Bible actually uses things like it was a type, it was a shadow, right? There, so there's like... Well, there's things inside the Bible that kind of sound Platonist of sorts. And so, you know, Origen may have read those things. Uh, so just like this sort of spectrum, right, of, because like, yeah, I would totally, yeah, sure, under the tree, that makes complete sense, right? The tree, right, I mean, cursed it in a tree, that's how the New Testament uses it. So it's kind of like, even like a battle today of like the dispensationalists, they, they kind of, they want to take more of the Old Testament in this literal fashion, and the reform kind of take it typological, and, and maybe Origen was just, uh, he, like you said, he was the first to do it, and he had something, but he was just maybe a little off, but then those guys, oh, he had it way wrong, so you wouldn't even have thought of it if it wasn't for Origen. Oh, getting back to the point, because I'm trying to make the question clear. How do we, how do, we do that? How, how, how do we uh, not be people of our time? Like, how, how, like, oh, we're not influenced by philosophy. You just are a product of your culture. You have no idea what you're influenced or, you know, maybe Origen was conscious of his platonic nature, but how do we know we're not influenced by postmodernity? Yeah. Like, is it even plausible to not be influenced by those kind of things? And so you automatically, this is way, this is just going everywhere. But I'm trying to get to like, I know, I, 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 that's why I didn't want to say anything. But I'm trying to get to this point, like, when we're doing our theological inquiry, we, we act as though our hermeneutics are a blank slate, but they're just not. Even up to the point before we start reading scripture, we already have experiences in our life. We go create a biblical worldview, except you already have a bit of a worldview even before you start reading the scriptures that you will impose upon the scriptures. Now, maybe you can relearn. I digress. So all of that information together, what can we learn from origin for just hermeneutics in general and how we balance our scripture reading with Oh, yeah, Re Revelation is figurative. Oh, no, it's all literal. H how do we balance that? Yeah. Um, so I, th I think uh, Origen's desire to see all of the Scripture as being fulfilled in Christ is commendable. I think that's something that we ought to strive for. 
the problem is, is that Origen did not tether that to the actual word of God. We have to let the word of God control our, our understanding of typology. Uh, right? We need to be able to see these patterns. So, for instance, I mean, just off the top of my head, right, uh, Exodus 19. Right? Israel comes to Mount Sinai. God says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a, a holy nation, whatever. We see that exact same language repeated by the Apostle Peter in, in was it First Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter Somewhere around there. Um, so uh, we, we can understand the relationship between those two texts because the scripture puts them together for us. Um, and as we see those patterns traced out in scripture, the, the significant thing is to see it, is to have it anchored in the scripture. Um, as far as to the point of, of making sure that we aren't being swayed by our own philosophies, uh, of course it's... It's impossible for us to go outside of ourselves, right, to read the scripture. Um, but that's the value, I think, of studying church history and, and reading wide, uh, widely um, the, the fathers and the reformers and the Puritans. Um, because oftentimes we can, uh, we are blinded to certain things in the scripture because of our own tradition, because of our own context. And reading these other guys that are approaching the scripture from a totally different context that's going to help us see things in a different, fuller light than, than we didn't previously. Um, oh, thank you. Thanks, thanks. Are you speaking in the subject? A little bit. Can I speak? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to... Uh, I was just going to say um, to your point, Thaddeus, first of all, we have, to, we have to approach church history with a gracious spirit and heart and remember that men who have gone long before us are men whose shoulders we're standing on, for better or for worse, even if they got some things wrong. Um, Origen, for all of his flaws, was a trailblazer, and he cared about the Word of God, you know, um, and I think we do, I think even today, the church as a whole is being challenged in our hermeneutics because more guys are going back to the early church. I think a lot of the early church fathers for a long time were just treated as almost like unimportant or inaccessible. They seem to come to the just Bible. A, a bunch of Roman Catholics. Yeah, and they seem, I think, I think they were viewed with suspicion of just like they came to the Bible in such a different way than us yeah. that we almost can't trust anything they said. And I think, for instance, even though Origen went too far with allegory and it wasn't tethered to the scriptures as it should have been, I think we have some stuff to learn from in our age that sometimes our hermeneutics are so systematized in terms of the historical literal interpretation that we don't have any room for seeing things that ought to be seen in certain texts, you know? And so... There's an under-emphasis on seeing Christ in the Old Testament and things like that, especially from dispensationalists, because they want to, you know, so harp on the whole literal thing. Um, but I, I think, like, the whole emphasis on, well, if the human writer wouldn't have understood it, then it wasn't in the text. That's not true. I mean, the, the, 
the New Testament apostles write about how the Old Testament prophets were trying to figure out what they were writing about and who they were writing about. So the actual meaning of Scripture goes beyond the human intention and has to include the divine intention, which does open up seeing a lot of things in the text that today sometimes people limit it and they just basically exclude that for fear of being allegorical or whatever. But I don't know, just an observation. I think we can learn, even if these guys didn't get it perfect, they at least challenge us of like, oh man, they saw that and we need to figure out where we should land, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I would point to a passage like Hosea chapter 6, I think it's Hosea 6, where, where the prophet says, out of Egypt I called my son. If you have a hermeneutic that doesn't allow you to see in that passage what Matthew saw in that passage, that this was speaking of Christ, you have the wrong hermeneutic. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, I think there is a lot that we can learn from uh, the, the early church and their approach to Scripture. And I heard somewhere, uh, I don't know if it was Justin Martyr or Cyprian or something, I can't remember what age they're in, but isn't it possible, too, that Origen might not have had access to all the Scriptures, like New Testament yet? Because it kind of takes like a while for all of them. I know they're up and created by then, but it takes a while for them to circulate everywhere. I know one of them, like Justin Martyr or something, it was something like they only had access to the Gospels, maybe not Pauline epistles. So I wonder if that might have played in here. That's probably not Origen's problem. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's said that if we lost all of the Greek manuscripts from antiquity, if we, if, and we, we just had Origen, we could reproduce the, the, new, the entire New Testament just from Origen's writings. Um, so he, he, had, he had a whole bunch. Yeah. So my, my question or, or comment kind of follows the same line as what Kyle was talking about, maybe a little bit different, um, in that um, I don't think that we would be right to interpret the scriptures without understanding that there is some allegory in certain things. Because in Galatians, Paul mentions, for this is an allegory, when he's talking about Hagar and, the, and, the, and Mount Sinai. You know? And so we understand and know that there are deeper spiritual understandings that are drawn out through the word and our reading of the word. But then again, we also have to understand and know that there is a line that can be crossed. For instance, when we are talking about philosophy, uh, um, even the whole Armenian concept of understanding or believing, uh, for example, that because God commands man to uh, have faith, that that implies that man has the ability to do so. You know? Yeah.